All right, we are back, and I do note with some minor amount of hilarity that as we are recording here, night has fallen, and the fireworks have begun. Now, in an hour, if you do the math, you'll find that there are 3,600 seconds, 60 times 60. Now, I recall a day, a day, a half century ago, if the truth be told, where I was out with my grandpa on the 4th of July, and uh, our neighbor, a rather colorful character named Leroy Mora, came over about the same time, about dusk, and uh, we listened as <laughs> seemingly the entire East Bay erupted in firecrackers, cherry bombs, M80s, what have you. Leroy's comment at the time, which has stuck with me over these years, <laughs> was that they sure do a good job of keeping out those illegal fireworks, don't they? And I would note that a half century or so later, they're not doing any better a job <laughs> keeping out the fireworks. Our microphone, I'm sure, will not be adequate to the task of, of picking up the sounds of these explosions, but they are at least, I would say, one per second. Meaning that people locally are blowing off fireworks at the rate of about 4,000 an hour. Now, we have no word from what's going on down in San Jose, California. But we'll try to get some follow-up for you for next week's program or the week after, whenever we are before you again. It might be next week. I do want to offer a heartfelt apology to all listeners who may, who may, having heard it mentioned on this program, tuned in the Strange Angel series on CBS. Well, it's CBS, whatever it is, streaming, whatever. Uh, Mr. Millen and I watched this with high hopes. We were huge fans of George Pendle's book. Really, without a doubt, one of our favorite interviews over the years. And so we were, well, I don't think appalled is too strong a word at what was put before the public. The uh, writers, if we want to dignify them with that description, the writers who wrote this segment and presumably the ones to follow, uh, apparently decided that mm, basing the events on the screen on what was in the book or what transpired in actual reality was not necessary. They decided that an exercise in improv was in order. After watching this first episode, of which there are purportedly going to be 10, I immediately had Mr. Merlin recontact CBS to cancel the free subscription which we had signed up for. We uh, cannot in good faith recommend this series to you. We hope it gets better. God knows we hope it gets better. But considering how bad the first episode was, we've given up. We would counsel you seriously to read the book if you're so inclined. We think you should be so inclined because it's a hell of a good book. Or just go back to our archives at radioparallax.com and listen to our interview with George Pennell. Again, it was one of our favorites. I did make mention on last week's program about um, some of the strange characters that appear in this saga, among them Aleister Crowley. Who doesn't make a personal appearance? Does not make a personal appearance, but is in the background. I did get a um, an, an email, which I think I will read from from a Logan. It was not clear whether Logan heard us on KDVS or KZFR, our two outlets for terrestrial radio. Either way, we're we're glad uh, we're glad he caught the show. He said, "Hey Doug, I've been a listener from the beginning, and I'm really stoked that Radio Parallax is back. I have a slight correction from this week's show. 
Aleister Crowley wasn't a Satanist. He was a hermetic ceremonial magician and the founder of the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis, after he was banned from the Golden Dawn. He was most definitely a practitioner of sex magic, spelled M-A-G-I-C-K, and used drugs to enter an altered state of consciousness. He was also a carny, a con artist, and a master manipulator. Said Logan, I read Strange Angel after your interview with the author and loved it. Thanks for the years of entertainment. Well, you're welcome, Logan. Thank you for writing. And, you know, please, the rest of you out there, feel free to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We enjoy hearing from you. And if you have any insights about what I'm about to say about Morocco, please jump in. And I think we need some appropriate music here from Hope and Crosby, Mr. McMillan. We're off on the road to Morocco. Well, look out. We're well, cleared away. Stand here by for a concussion. <laughs> the many fires sleep on nails and saw their wives in half. It seems to me there should be easier ways to get a laugh. Shall I slip my big shoes on? Off on the road to Morocco. Hooray! Well, blow a horn. Yes. The Road Pictures, I believe there were seven of them. Uh, the Road to Morocco with Bing Crosby and Bob Hope is widely considered to be the funniest of the lot. I am sad to note that although I had a VHS, VHS copy of it, I apparently turned it into the used bookstore a couple of months ago because I want to watch it now. Not that it bears any relationship whatsoever to the actual place of Morocco. As, as the boys are singing... That catchy tune of we're off on the road to Morocco at the beginning. You might note that they are riding a two-humped camel. The Bactrian or two-humped camel would be appropriate for the Gobi Desert, but it's not actually found anywhere in Africa. That would in fact be the one-humped, I'd walk a mile for a camel type dromedary, which cut quite a figure in Lawrence of Arabia. Speaking of Lawrence of Arabia, I believe that, um, that a great deal of it was actually filmed in Morocco which uh, in the southern part has plenty of desert. Well, it's the western extension of the Sahara, by far the largest desert on planet Earth. Oh, and since we're talking about movies, I guess we are, we should note for the record that Casablanca was not filmed on location. It was entirely shot on the back lot down in Burbank. Evidently, however, enterprising entrepreneurs, shall we say, it is a a French-speaking nation, have created a Rick's Cafe in Casablanca, which naturally bears no relationship whatsoever to what is seen in the Humphrey Bogart movie. Well, when I say it bears no resemblance, the interior may have been modeled after the sets in the movie. I don't know. We decided not to go visit Rick's Cafe in Casablanca. I'm pretty sure that the poor son of a gun that plays the piano inside is pretty tired of being asked to play as time goes by. Oh, admittedly, it's a great tune. I'd also lay pretty good money the piano player has a name tag that says Sam on it, even if his real name is probably Habib. But frankly, if you if you can't if you can't produce Ingrid Bergman, Sidney Greenstreet, and Peter Lorre. I mean, why bother? Although I'm also forgetting my all-time favorite, Claude Rains. <laughs> the legendary scene where they decide to shut down Rick's Cafe. 
He blows the whistle, calls his gendarmes in to close the joint down. <laughs> and when asked why, says, I've just discovered there's gambling going on here. To which the croupier says, you're winning, Inspector. He goes, oh, thank you very much. At any rate, as mentioned on last week's program, uh, yours truly is very high on Morocco. It is a, uh, is, a thoroughly, is a thoroughly enjoyable place to visit. It is very much used to tourism. Not a lot of Americans go there, but boy, do the Europeans. On last week's show, I speculated that you might think of Morocco as Europe's Mexico. I think that holds water. And man, is the climate reminiscent. I mean, it is, it is Lisbon in Portugal, north of the Straits of Gibraltar, is almost exactly the same latitude as San Francisco. As you go south of the Algarve, where Portugal peters out, you're still north of Los Angeles. By the time you're at Casablanca, I think you're about the same latitude as L.A., and as you go south of that, you're down into Ensenada land in, in Mexico. And not coincidentally, there's an offshore current going north to south that's cold. There's a, a, an onshore breeze from the west, as there is on the North American west coast. And the conditions are quite similar. A Mediterranean climate, a nice place to hang. Now, unfortunately for Morocco, in, in the current mania over Muslims and banning them from coming into the United States and blah, 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 the Trump administration, a lot of Americans, I think, would be nervous to think about going to any Muslim country, Morocco or any of them, I guess, which is very sad. I think I can say at this point I've been to, I don't know, 10 or 12 countries of, of a Muslim majority or significant minority. I would count India. I believe India is the world's most popular, the second most populous um, Muslim nation after Indonesia. There are more Hindus than Muslims in India, but there's still <laughs> lots of Muslims. I think Egypt may come in number three after Indonesia and in India. I, I'm not sure. It doesn't matter. Uh, I've been treated as well in Muslim countries as I have been treated in Christian countries. And I think so will you, dear listener, if you, if you will make the effort to go there. It was sad to contemplate the history of the nation of Morocco. It uh, had an, a native population referred to as Berber, which I think the, was the Roman word for barbarian, and nevertheless it has been embraced. The Phoenicians got there for a while along, along the North African coast, uh, they of uh, the Carthaginian Empire. The Romans, after kicking the crap out of, out of Carthage, made an appearance. There is a wonderful set of Roman ruins at a town called Volubilis, <clears throat> north of Fez, which, um, boy, I mean, you took a look at it, you, you can see where the Romans would go, this is where we're going to build a city. It looks so like Italy. It was ruled by a Roman leader who was uh, the husband of the daughter of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Although he reportedly ran afoul of Caligula, who didn't run afoul of Caligula, and uh, got deposed. The Arabs arrived in the 7th century, I believe, and uh, converted the populace. Although the populace was rather unruly, and there was a series of invaders, which I really couldn't, uh, couldn't relate to you without a chart. But, uh, you know, it was Muslim then and has been Muslim ever since. It got a huge influx of the population of Iberia in the wake of Spain, kicking out all of its Muslims and Portugal following suit after having its arm twisted by the Spanish. We've talked about some of this on this show in the past. Actually, last year, in fact, when we talked about the fall of Granada. The Muslim armies came across the Straits of Gibraltar, landing at the Rock, 
whose name I think translates as the Rock of of Tariq or something along those lines. They got a, they got they got all the way into France. They crossed the Pyrenees before uh, uh, Charles Martel and the Christian armies turned them back. But they were in Iberia for a long, long time, and for a while made Seville uh, possibly the world's most um, sophisticated city. But unfortunately, religion, as it so often does, um, got involved to initiate bloodshed and to throw the Muslims out and recreate Christian states. When Granada fell, Ferdinand and Isabella were in a celebratory mood and uh, were convinced by this guy who didn't know what he was talking about named Christopher Columbus that it was worth rolling the dice and giving him a couple ships to see if he could sail west and find India. He did not, although he did discover the Bahamas, also what later became Haiti and the Dominican Republic, as well as Cuba, and a smattering of other islands, and eventually found his way to the South American mainland, never made it onto North American or Central American shores. But unfortunately for the Muslims in Spain, they were now personas non grata and told leave. Where did they go? South, to Morocco. The Jewish population of Iberia was also um, not welcome. And they were told they pretty much needed to convert to Catholicism or get the hell out. Some of them went east and wound up in Istanbul. A lot of them went due south and wound up in Morocco. Reportedly, the Jewish population in Morocco as late as the 1950s was a million. Unfortunately, there's only apparently a few hundred left. They moved in mass to the new state of Israel in the 50s. Someone asked me the other day whether Mordecai Venunu, a Radio Parallax guest many years ago, was in fact a, a, a Jew of Moroccan ancestry, and I didn't, didn't know the answer to that. I guess I should look that up before I speak before the microphone. I'll have an answer by next week. How's that? I do want to note that Morocco has a world-famous reputation for aggressive marketing. <laughs> um, if you know anyone who's taken the ferry over from Spain to, to Tangier, you will probably hear horror stories of how they did not appreciate the assault upon their persons by very aggressive people who offered their services as guides or wanted to lead them to a restaurant or wanted to show them how to buy a carpet or wanted to show them how to get some leather goods, etc., etc. And I got a story about that I'll return to in a minute. Nevertheless, um, I guess I should kind of do it chronologically. We started out in, in Casablanca. Uh, which is kind of the New York City of, of Morocco, the place where things happen. The King Hassan Mosque is very impressive. I believe it's the world's third largest. Uh, the king spent a lot of dough to make this very impressive mosque, and it is certainly worth a tour if you find yourself in Casablanca. As I mentioned in last week's program, uh, almost the entirety of our trip coincided with Ramadan meaning the populace does not eat, drink, smoke, or uh, cavort during the daylight hours, meaning that they get up at 5 a.m. and eat a large meal and drink a lot to sustain them throughout the day. And of course, you know, when Ramadan takes place in the longest days of the year, in June, as it did this year, it's, it's a pretty rough go. Not everyone uh, uh, is a Muslim. One of our Riyadh, which is the, the, the stately old houses that have been converted to, uh, to living quarters for tourists uh, um, admitted that he, he was an atheist. I got the feeling this was not something that a lot of people were willing to admit to. But we encountered him in Marrakesh. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's describe what the journey 
included. We uh, struck down the coast, not on the main highway, to uh, a women's commune, which apparently are all over Morocco, where they uh, process argon oil. This is purported to be a miracle oil of Morocco. If it is roasted, it can be made into food. If it is pressed without being roasted, it can be made into cosmetics and soap, etc. That was interesting. After purchasing a few items made of argon oil, we continued our journey south, headed for the town of Essaouira. This town of about 70,000 has become one of the world's centers for kiteboarding and windsurfing because, man, does the wind blow. I suspect that has something to do with the convection cell of the Sahara pulling in winter, pulling in wind off of the Atlantic, but uh, I'm not a meteorologist. We picked a good time to go there. During the summer months, it is invaded by uh, the Moroccan population who wishes to get out of the hot inland portions of the country and find their way to that sea breeze. We did have high hopes for getting in some surfing, perhaps. There's a town, Tagajut, which is down toward the large city of Agadir. Agadir is the, is the Moroccan holiday location on the coast. Uh, we did not spend any time there. It apparently was leveled by an earthquake circa 1916. has been entirely rebuilt in a modern way. The coast down near that was quite stunning, beautiful water, and I can imagine it would be a wonderful place to surf if there were any waves. <laughs> Unfortunately, when we were there, it looked pretty grim for the, the, uh, the Norwegians who were out there taking surfing lessons. We pulled in, had a nice swim in the ocean, and um, made a left turn at Agadir Inland and headed for Marrakesh. Marrakesh is considered probably the location. If you're going to go, to go to one spot in Morocco, I think there's a consensus that that's where you ought to go. To quote from Lonely Planet about the Medina, the old section of town in Marrakesh, think of it as a live action channel surfing. Everywhere you look in the Dejima El Fana, which is the large square in the center of town, Marrakesh's main square, you'll discover drama in progress. The Hoopla and Halka Street Theater has been nonstop here ever since the plaza was the site of public executions around A.D. 1050. Hence its name, which means Assembly of the Dead. By mid-morning, the soundtrack of Snake Charmer Flutes has already begun, but the show doesn't kick off till sunset when restaurants fire up their grills, cueing musicians to tune up their instruments. UNESCO declared the Dejima El Fana a masterpiece of world heritage in 2001. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite a place. And so we were, we were directed to um, one of the uh, eating places out in the square, which gets disassembled in the middle of the night and reassembled at, at dusk, or at least it did during Ramadan. We uh, made a beeline for these guys and ate with them three nights in a row. It turned out that the Lonely Planet map of Marrakesh featured our dudes serving up food as the top site well, it was a coincidence. They listed a, a number of top sites in Marrakesh, but number one was alongside a picture of our pals, or at least they became our pals. Now, their aggressive um, tout action was, was very much in evidence. Throngs of people are, are, are spilling by this, this great circus of, in Marrakesh, and the guys that want you to come and eat their food are out there shoving a menu in the face of the tourists and inviting them to come and eat with them. After watching this go on, <laughs> night after night, I decided to, to lend a hand. I may have mentioned this on last week's program, but, but at one point, when various guys, there was about a half dozen of them, would go out and show the menu and explain why their food was really good. 
I would I would show up behind them and say, I'm not getting paid to do this, but I got to say, it is pretty good. You, you ought to consider eating here. I believe we got 11 people <laughs> through my through my efforts to uh to um to close the deal to come to come and eat. No, I did not get comp to meal. There were a few ugly moments in Marrakesh above all other places. At one point, a guy, uh, an angry-looking guy, was swearing at the three of us as we walked by and spit in our direction, hitting my friend Michael on, on, on his shirt and leaving a glob of whatever on his shoe. But then this, oper- this offered the opportunity to go to one of these shoeshine guys out in the Alphana who demonstrated his proficiency. Well, we walked by these guys, and unlike every other tout that's out there in your face, you know, trying to get you to come to him, he was sitting there reading the paper. If you wanted his shoe shining service, you could engage him, and if you didn't, he was going to keep reading the paper. So we stopped and um, employed him. Michael employed him to fix up his leather on his shoes, and the guy did a great job. It was really funny to watch him in action, buffing the shoes, putting the, putting the polish on. A real pro. He did not completely uh, uh, erase the unsightly mark on the shoe, thanks to the spittle of the crazy guy, but uh, it looked a lot better. Anyway, we spent three days in Marrakesh, and, and frankly, that was enough. We uh, left Marrakesh and headed out into the country, um, the foothills, I guess you'd say, of the High Atlas Mountains. There are basically four mountain ranges that traverse Morocco, the northern part is the Rif Mountains near the Mediterranean. There's the Atlas and the Anti-Atlas and the Mid-Atlas that, uh, that goes southwest and northeast across the country. We went along uh, this road, quite a beautiful road. I should post some pictures on, on Facebook or elsewhere of how pretty the scenery was. It was a nice drive. And we visited a waterfall along the way, which my travel agent, Stan, was keen to get a report back on. And Stan, my report is it's a beautiful set of falls, but... <laughs> the women doing laundry up above the falls was, was somewhat discouraging. I would not have, under any circumstances, swum in the water in that waterfall. Although it is, it is quite, quite pretty. We uh, wound up in a town of Beni Malal, which is uh, a little east of the waterfall, and that was a welcome bit of calm, calmness after Marrakesh and before Fez. After recharging our batteries there, as it were, and by the way, the chef in the hotel there was, God, the best meals I had in the country. And I feel so bad because there were so few patrons in that hotel. Sometime in the 20s, the French built a version of Switzerland in the high mountains, complete with a ski resort area. And in Ifrane National Park, there's the remnants of a cypress forest in this area. Oh, and the king also decided to put a, a big-ass palace up there where the weather is nice and cool. It was there we encountered probably the most interesting individual we met in our two weeks in Morocco. He was an American of Moroccan ancestry, tied up in some political intrigues with his own family. He did point out to us that in the ramp-up to the Iraq War, his dad, who was Iraqi, along with his Moroccan mother, um found his way into Fox News to assure the American public that there were weapons of mass destruction, and by God, we should go in there and do something about it. According to his son, his father knew this was all poppycock. <coughs> and I'm sure he was right about that. And uh, I'm really up against it on time here. i got about a minute left to tell you about Fez. And since Fez was the only place in the country of Morocco I disliked, I'm going to dis Fez. 
by skipping right over it. Although in fairness, I do want to say that possibly the single most exhilarating moment on the trip came when our Riyadh owner explained to us that, I think I mentioned this on last week's program, it's worth repeating if I did, that the imam or religious person who had to make this determination needed to see the new crescent moon to declare the end of Ramadan. He said if the imam sees the moon, they will fire a cannon off seven times and the population will know they no longer need to fast the next day. My nephew, Kevin Valentino, had an app that showed exactly where the moon was in the sky and we were using it to realize that not a lot of time left for that imam. I'm not sure he's an imam. I'm just saying that's a generic term I'm using for a Muslim religious authority. Nevertheless, um, the time was getting short for him to make the call and say, yeah, I see the crescent moon. We couldn't see the crescent moon, but he had a telescope. The moon was going to set at 8.22. When it got to be about 8.10, we thought, well, you know, you know, it's about time if he's going to declare it. And wouldn't you know it, there was a flash of light over at the fort to our north, followed by bam, and then six more flashes and six more booms. Ramadan was over, and the whole population of Fez was cheering. We were cheering, too. There was no mad dash at the restaurants because everybody was still bound to not eat until, you know, till then, until till it was sunset. Sunset was a little bit before moonset, so I think they were already starting to eat and just relieved about the fact that they didn't need to get up at 5 a.m. the next morning and eat a big breakfast. They could now eat throughout the day. And that, ladies and gentlemen, just about does it for time, so let's bring it to an end. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We'll have more to say about Morocco, I hope, in some future installments. We hope you enjoyed the comedy in segment one. This has been a new episode of Radio Parallax. I'm your faithful servant, Douglas Everett. We will see you soon. How's that? (laughs) 